nature doesn't make bad fats. Factories do. Factories where they, they're, they're crushed, they're heated, then they are chemically alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized, uh, and then steamed, and they're heated four or five different times in this processing. They go through these factories that look like petroleum refineries, and at the end of that, they, what they do is they clean it all up and put it into a bottle, and you got this nice, you know, light yellow colored liquid that looks, you know, and we're told it's harmless, but that is, those are bottles of poison. Welcome to the Fat Emperor Podcast. I'm your host, Ivor Cummins. We're supported by the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Charity, which advocates a simple CT scan to reveal your CAC score. So know your score and take action to prevent that premature heart attack. Everything you need to know will be right here. Many of you will have been told that seed oils or vegetable oils are heart healthy or generally healthy. And that may not be quite true, as you may be aware, having listened to me in the past few years. But today we're going to talk to Chris Kenobi, MD, who's a specialist in macular degeneration and illnesses or diseases of the eye. And he has done an enormous amount of research on these vegetable oils, omega-6 linoleic acids, and how they may be quite detrimental for our health. So great to see you again, Chris. Great to see you, Ivor. Pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for the opportunity. Oh, not at all. This is a very important topic and uh, it needs to get out there more. And I think it was Montana I was speaking at the Ancestral Health Symposium, but I didn't quite catch up with you. I got to see your talk, but I didn't actually catch up with you because I was on the fly. So uh, it was great to meet you in uh, Denver last month. Yeah, it was great to meet you too, Ivor. I did not know you were at the AHS 18 in Montana. I definitely would have tried to connect with you. So it's great to connect now. Exactly. So this whole topic of seed oils or vegetable oils, or I like to call them factory fats, you know, to emphasize that they're man-made almost artificial given all the chemical processes and uh, deodorization and extracting them at high temperature and pressure from seeds which is where they really come from and they're very unnatural that doesn't mean definitely they're unhealthy just by being unnatural factory fats but the data would suggest that they are indeed very unhealthy so your recent talk in denver i saw it the other night it was a tour de force so maybe we go through probably some of the content of that talk and your whole case, if you will, against the vegetable oils. Right. Okay. So right off the bat, what I would say to you just, just in a, as an opening is I would say to you that the vegetable oils as I see them and based on the research that I've done over the last five years are indeed poison. And I don't use that term lightly. We could call them toxins, but they are poisonous. And the, the reason that I say that, Ivor, is because um, seed oils, vegetable oils, polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and we'll get, we can define exactly what they are, but these uh, oils are highly pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative, toxic and nutrient deficient 
And we can go through kind of each one of those, but you put all of that together and what you end up with is, is it's a, th this is a soup really that creates nutrient deficiencies of fat soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2 uh, in the people consuming these to any significant degree. And then secondly, you've got all of the issues with inflammation, oxidation, and toxicity and put all that together and in my opinion i think these are driving around 80 percent of the chronic disease in westernized populations and when i say westernized i mean populations that are consuming westernized diets and by by westernized diets you let me define that too because it's not <clears throat> excuse me it's not a high fat diet as you know, orthodox allopathic medicine calls it, westernized, I use, you know, I'll use the definition that's close to Western price, and it's basically, it's four things. It's, it's refined added sugars, refined white flour, essentially wheat flour, uh, the polyunsaturated vegetable oils, and trans fats. So those four things together define a westernized diet, and in my opinion, those four things make up man-made processed nutrient deficient toxic food and that's the soup that's killing us that's the that's the driver of virtually all of this disease yeah and you know i wouldn't disagree uh, i've often referred to satan's triad or the devil's triad which is sugar refined grains and uh, vegetable or factory fats and of course you can add trans fats they're kind of being made illegal now but, but either way the first three are the big three i guess and weston price back in the 20s and 30s exactly as you say he took a shot at at what was causing modern degenerative disease in people's diets a huge amount of research but he came up with those three and then interestingly in 1972 man et al did a big study on the maasai and they were eating uh, blood and fat and, and some dairy and all this. And they had no heart disease, no real atherosclerosis or dangerous atherosclerosis or calcification. And even though their uh, study was more around looking at uh, how healthy they were and verifying what I just said, they also took a shot at their best guess at what in the diet could drive this. And they came up with the same three things in 1972, sugar, refined grains, and vegetable fats. And now the data all put together is so compelling. And over 50% of calories in the UK at last count last year are coming from ultra-processed foods. And what are ultra-processed foods overwhelmingly? Sugar, refined grains, and vegetable fats or, or seed oils. So everything lines up, right? But we, we get to go through it and talk around all the points of evidence. Right, yeah. So I, um, I found my way into this area, really, um, I'd say, you know, I stumbled into it uh, and really wanted to understand what was, what, what was driving all this disease when I had changed my diet back in 2011 and dramatically improved my own arthritis that I'd been suffering with for about 16 years. And, uh, but I studied nutrition, Ivor, for a couple of years until I 
eventually I started uh, coming across the work of Chris Masterjohn and Stephen Guiena and eventually Sally Fallon of the Weston A. Price Foundation. And I stumbled onto the work of Weston Price. And when I read his book, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, it just changed my life. And the only reason I'm sitting here today talking to you about any of this is because of Weston Price's research. And for those that don't know, I'll just give a really quick summary. So Weston Price was a highly accomplished scientist uh, and nutrition researcher who uh, traveled the world back in uh, the 1930s evaluating populations as they transitioned from their native traditional diets over to westernized diets. And by westernized, it was really those, as you said, it was, he defined the, the westernized as uh, uh, added sugars, refined white flour, uh, canned goods, sweets, confectionery, and vegetable oil. So you can just narrow that down. I've always defined it as what we're talking about. You can simplify it to the added sugars, uh, refined flours, vegetable oils, and trans fats. And what, but what Price found on five continents in uh, hundreds of tribes and villages in, uh, all around the world as these people transitioned from their native traditional diets to westernized diets, they developed dental decay first. And that was followed by all this degenerative disease, which usually began with arthritis and cancers. And, uh, but Price found that the people consuming their native traditional diets were consuming 10 times more fat soluble vitamins, A, D, and K2, four times more water soluble vitamins, which is all the B vitamins and C, and one and a half to times more, one and a half to, to 60 times more minerals than the American diets of his day, 1930s. And so, I think one of the most important things to realize is that Price was so ahead of his time and he understood nutrition research and he was such an incredible scientifically minded researcher that he knew even in the 1920s and 1930s, Americans had already westernized their diets and he couldn't find what he said was suitable controls at home. So he left the United States and evaluated people all over the world because there he could find people that weren't consuming these, you know, westernized foods, right? And so um, that's how he discovered that in a in a, a village of people consuming their native traditional foods, they're fantastically healthy, have beautiful teeth, virtually no disease at all, and. Uh, in a village five miles away at a port or a, a place where they could access commercialized, modernized foods, those people were getting the dental decay and the arthritis and cancers and all this chronic disease. And so again, once I understood that in 2013 myself, and I realized that all this westernized, uh, nutrient deficient, processed, toxic food is driving all of these diseases of civilization, heart disease, hypertension, stroke, cancers, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, the autoimmune diseases, right? The list just goes on and on. Yeah. Then I questioned, you know, could it also be driving age-related macular degeneration? And, and Ivor, that's kind of how I ended up 
down this path. And so I spent a few years, I, you know, basically connecting processed foods to macular degeneration. And then I, about 2016, 2017, I really got deeply interested in vegetable oils and how those are driving all of this disease. So that's kind of my story. Yeah, no, that's a great summary there, as well as the story or the, the history you went through. Uh, but I remember, yeah, you focused on AMD or macular degeneration uh, in several of your talks earlier on. And now you're kind of circling back, having conquered that whole topic to the broader question that you described there. The long list of chronic diseases that are all underpinned by this triad or, or well, four things if you add the uh, hydrogenated fats. So it's an enormous problem and people often criticize and say, you can't just blame X or just blame Y, but, but you have to be reasonable and say, we can't blame everything. We have to pick the top few things that causes most of the problem. And, and then you're straight back to that triad. It's, if you took out those sugars, refined grains and vegetable oils or factory fats, if you took those magically away uh, 80 years ago, yeah, there'd be some more modern chronic disease because of pesticides and this and that, but to be an utterly different landscape. Utterly. Is that fair to say? Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think if you, if you removed vegetable oils, trans fats, sugars, and refined flour, I think we would eliminate probably in the range of 97% of chronic disease. Uh, that, that's my, that's my opinion because I just, I can't see that if you, if we can start going through the history, if you want, Ivor, um, which I'd love to do, but, but if we look back historically, we could just see, and, and we see how fantastically healthy we were, for example, here in the United States and, and around the world. And now we see, the same thing happening all over the world as the world follows what the United States does and why they, you know, why people follow what we do and what the United Kingdom does boggles my mind that they're not seeing this. It is just absolutely insane and absurd and a travesty that the world is uh, following what Americans do. Yeah. Well, it's understandable though, because industry and the food industry is built on these three or four ultra cheap, hyper palatable, um, you know, long shelf life, dirt cheap components that you put them together in the right magic mixture and people can't stop eating them. So as well as killing themselves, they actually hunger for more and more and more when you take away real food or, or lower the real food content in your diet. So it spread from America because at some level, people want tasty crap. Um, and are, but if they were fully informed, I think, uh, I often say to people that when we told people that margarines were heart healthy, all across Ireland and the world, I know all the people who are middle-aged who are concerned about heart disease, Every fridge had flora and the margarines. Everyone followed the rules. They were told margarines were heart healthy. So in fairness, if everyone was told clearly what the problem is, a lot of people would actually act. But the problem is we have people blaming meat for cancer. 
We have people blaming saturated fat for heart disease. Um, on and on and on. The misinformation is so powerful and contradictory that even the half of the billion in the West who would do something, did they know what they needed to do, they can't do it because no one knows what's going on because of the misinformation. Right, right, mm. right. So one of the things that I did, Ivor, when I you know first went down this path is, is I started, and this is what I still do today is, is I, I've looked at the history of all of these chronic diseases, uh, I shouldn't say all of them, but a, a number of them in relation to our diet. So um, can we kind of go down that path? Is that, is that good, is that fair? Yeah, for sure. I think the history is really important as well as the science and the evidence. The history gives all the context um, so, so absolutely. And, and I think I mentioned earlier as well, afterwards in this video file, I'd be able to pop in some of your slides. So anything you refer to that, that would benefit from that, I'll, I'll pop them on the screen. All right. So I want to, let me start with this then, you know, when I was in, uh, I went to university of Colorado school of medicine here in Denver, Colorado, 1986 to 1990. And Ivor, what I can tell you in the next few minutes um, about the history of disease. I never learned any of this in medical school. They don't teach it. Of course, you know, conventional allopathic medical schools, for the most part, are not interested in prevention of disease. And so they don't look at the history of disease and they don't look at nutrition at all. I mean, they're just virtually, none of that is covered in medical school. So, so when a, when a uh, researcher wants to evaluate, uh, you know, did a disease exist? I mean, they're on their own they, because most of this has not been published. You have to do, as you know, you have to do a lot of work to get to this. So, um, so let me start with heart disease. Is that fair enough? All right, yep. with the history? So, so um, Jones and colleagues published an excellent paper in, in 2011 that reviewed some significant data on heart disease, and I've got a number of other references. But, um, they, but they noted that in the town of Boston in 1811, and Boston at that time was roughly 30,000 population, um, so there was like 950, uh, uh, 942 deaths. There wasn't a single death uh, that was related to coronary artery disease. There was 25 sudden deaths. So even if you thought all of those were due to coronary artery disease, which probably zero of them were, they were probably mostly coronary um, valvular disease because that's what was causing most of the heart disease in that area. It was driven by infectious disease, uh, the, the cardiac valvular valve cases were from syphilis, endocarditis, and rheumatic fever. And so this was driving um, heart disease back in that era, but that's not coronary artery disease, uh, obviously. And so they knew about congestive heart failure and core pulmonality, which is related to pulmonary hypertension. They understood all those things. So uh, in the 19th century, there was eight papers on heart disease, there was two cases of 
thrombotic coronary artery disease published. One was in 1859 in Switzerland. I think that's the very first known case of myocardial infarction in the world documented. There's only two thrombotic, in other words, myocardial infarctions cases for sure in the 19th century. Um, and then, and then this is really interesting. So uh, Sir William Osler is a famed physician. He was knighted by the UK at some point. I don't know when that was, but he was one of the founding partners of Johns Hopkins uh, Medical Center uh, here in Baltimore, Maryland. And in 1897, he, he, um, uh, he published a paper that reviewed his previous 21 years of hospital experience. So it would have been from 1876 to 1897. In 21 years, he was aware of around six cases of angina, you know, chest pain related to potential heart, heart, you know, heart disease, but he had never seen a heart attack. In fact, in his 1895 textbook of medicine, angina was not mentioned and myocardial infarction, heart attack was unknown. Wasn't mentioned, neither one. So then, that was 1897, he published that paper about his experience with angina. 13 years later in 1910, he presented at a, at a medical conference in London, England, and between 1897 and 1910, he stated that there was, a, an, they had, he was aware of an additional 208 cases of angina in the United States, but he'd never seen a heart attack, 1910 still had not seen a heart attack. So from 1876 to, two, to 1910, he'd never seen a heart attack, which is what the world had never seen. The world had never seen a heart attack, really, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, 1912, James Herrick in the United States published the first known case of heart attack with documented autopsy evidence. And um, if you look back, 1900, in, in the year 1900 in the US, Jones' paper, showed us that 12.5% of people died of heart-related disease, but it was all cardiac valvular. Again, syphilis, endocarditis, and rheumatic fever. It was valvular, not coronary artery disease, which again was unknown in the US and in the UK. So the UK has some really, uh, they have really good evidence of uh, heart disease uh, uh, and, and uh, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just mention. So by the night, back to the United States. So by the 1930s, in the U.S., heart disease becomes the leading cause of death. It was virtually unknown 20 years earlier, and it becomes the leading cause of death. And by 2010, 32.1%, I believe uh, it is, of uh, Americans are dying of heart disease. Right, and so it's almost one out of three. So we went from zero in the entire 19th century to almost one out of three people dying of heart disease mm -hmm. in a period of about a hundred years. Yeah. So, and, Oh yeah. I was just going to say, uh, Chris, and yeah, this, some people try and make the excuse and it is that an excuse. Oh, people didn't live as long earlier, but that's, that's frankly, that's rubbish because, you know, if you take out the child mortality, you know, there was a load of people living 1900 up to the 70s and 80s, an ample opportunity to observe all of this. But as you say, it just largely wasn't there. That's the reality. It's gone up orders of magnitude. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. Right. No, no, no. That's a great point. And I want to, if, if you want, we could circle back around to this because 
this is one of the things I see people say, especially uh, on their internet uh, uh, posts. Well, people didn't live as long, therefore they didn't get heart disease, cancer, stroke. That is so much rubbish, as you said. And I've got some good evidence on that that I could uh, that I could dig into here after a bit if you want to, um, because that is an absurd statement. But I but I can back that up. So this is okay. Continuing with uh, the um, with heart disease. So let me just tell you about England really quick because. There was a paper that um, David Grimes of the, of the UK from Blackburn Royal Infirmary published. Yeah. Uh, he published this paper in 2012, and it's got some excellent history. And one of the things that he reviews is that, so he shows a graph and, and, and gives all the evidence for heart disease in the United Kingdom, which is almost exactly like the United States because they, they did exactly what we did with their food, just almost to the T. And so in 1900 and 1910, there was zero per 100,000 deaths due to heart disease. They hadn't seen a heart attack yet, right? 1920, it was extraordinarily rare. And then they had this massive increase in their heart disease. So here's some numbers that are just, just to me, just staggering. So between um, 1921 and 1927, um, coronary artery disease deaths doubled. They doubled again between 1927 and 1929, doubled between 1929 and 1933, doubled between 1933 and 1939, doubled again by 1948, and doubled for the sixth time by 1956. So in 1900 and 1910, zero of 100,000 deaths were due to heart disease in the UK. By 1970, 550 per 100,000 deaths were due to heart disease. So there was a 550-fold increase in heart disease in the United Kingdom in 60 years. Yeah, and, and you know the proof point, even though what you say is absolutely correct, and there's no excuse for this except for an injurious agent, I think uh, Weston Price may have used the term, uh, or multiple ones. Uh, we have the modern populations in the 70s and 80s, like the Semaine and Catavans, that essentially still have ultra-low heart disease. But if they come over and get westernized within a generation or two, they're going to be as bad, or, or possibly with indigenous tribes, even worse than Caucasians. So you can triangulate this from every angle. There's no question, but we introduced something in the 1900s primarily that made a massive difference beyond all belief and i i know we're going to talk now about the refined carb sugars and and seed oils at some point but i guess also something we don't need to get into smoking and and individual rolled cigarettes came in in a big way in the 20s 30s 40s so that probably added to the fire i guess absolutely absolutely so you know i want to uh quote um david grimes again from the blackburn royal infirmary in this paper um, I think this is a brilliant quote. I'm just going to read it. He says here, quote, it is still claimed that coronary heart disease is due to genetic factors, but it is obvious that an epidemic cannot be due to faulty genes, which have a stable prevalence over a long period of time. However, genes can have an influence on susceptibility. And this is exactly what we see with macular degeneration, with 
to some degree with cancers, um, with diabetes. You could look at any chronic disease you want to, and we all have our genetic susceptibility. I'm genetically susceptible to arthritis, you know, with uh, a certain diet. And maybe you're more susceptible to metabolic syndrome. I don't know. But the point is, is we all have genetic susceptibilities. But here's the thing is that, uh, so genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And that environment, in my opinion, is about 99.7% diet. And so we see that, as you've already mentioned, in all these populations, just like Price showed in the 1930s, you've got populations all over the world. The evidence is just astounding that none of these people were getting chronic disease as long as they consumed native traditional foods. But when you start consuming vegetable oils and, and sugars and refined flours and you become nutrient deficient and toxic, now you're at risk. And this is where your genetic susceptibilities will come into play. And, you know, the two people can, can consume the exact same diet exactly right down to the last nitty gritty detail. And one of them might have a heart attack and the other one gets cancer, right? Because yep. they're because of genetic susceptibility. For sure. And even can sustain disease with no damage. Uh, I met a doctor in his 50s in Denver. And the happy news was he'd, he'd lost 80 pounds or something. And he had gone from diabetic type 2 to technically non-diabetic in 10 days based on glucose measurements by going low carb uh, and removing seed oils, of course. Uh, but the interesting thing was he had almost no heart disease, a CAC zero after 10 years plus of diabetes. So genetics, not only is your susceptibility or your being prone to catching a disease or getting a disease, but even having a disease, whether or not your body sustains major damage or not so much is also genetic susceptibility. So but none of that fixes the problem of an epidemic of modern chronic disease. And it, it peaked probably in the 70s, 80s, though it's taking off again with diabetes now. So the reality is genetics in the last 100 years changed zero. I think it's 15,000 years for a significant genetic shift, right, evolutionary. In 100 years, we went from nada to massive explosion that's ruining the world's health services. Genetics has precisely zero to do with that. I could not agree with you more. I, and I can't remember the number off the top of my head, Ivor, but the evolutionary biologists uh, tell us that our genetics are so stable that I think it's less than a 0.1% change in 10,000 years. Yeah. And so when people... And I, I'm not opposed to digging into genetics for people that want to go that route, but for people that believe that, uh, you know, take your pick, like in, like in macular degeneration, there's so much interest in the CFH and the uh, uh, ARMS2 genes that are thought to drive macular degeneration. And you take all the worst genetics and you put them all together and it, it, those people um, develop wet macular degeneration 
something like 3.6 to 5.4 years sooner than you know somebody that has the best genetics. It's not like they get macular degeneration when they're 30 and, and the people with the best genetics get it when they're 70. That's not at all the case. And um, so, yeah. So if it's so if it's point you know one percent change in our genetics in ten thousand years, what would it be in a hundred years? It's just virtually almost zero. So I think this you know a lot of when people have a lot of concerns about APOE four, for example, I'm not opposed. Like I said, I, I don't make it really clear. I'm not opposed to digging into that, but the point is, is that you still fix the problem by getting back to a traditional, a native traditional diet. If APOE4 increases your risk of Alzheimer's, sure it does, right? You know what, on APOE4 particularly, specifically, it's becoming quite apparent that they're the oldest genome, uh, the original human genome, and they do appear to be a bit more sensitive to modern processed foods, etc. But that's just a, a susceptibility and there was a study recently that looked at APOE4 versus E3 and E2 and looked at heart disease and uh, outcomes. And they basically discovered that APOE4, who had no hypertension or metabolic syndrome, were around three times less likely than the other genotypes to have a problem. And if they had hypertension or metabolic syndrome, they were three times more likely. So basically, even the APOE4 sensitivity was completely uh, decided by whether or not they had hypertension, which is insulin resistance syndrome mostly. So it's just again and again, it's not the genetics and all the cholesterol nonsense as well. They go on and on about genetics. And one other thing we'll just wipe out to clear it off the map for the rest of the conversation, maybe if you agree, is I refuse to talk about 5G and cellular phones and, and insecticides and other stuff that came along in the last 10 or 20, 30 years. Because the lion's share of our epidemic happened before any of those things. So if they contribute, yeah, whatever. We've still got a big fish to fry with what caused the epidemic, right? So I'm not going to get caught up in all that stuff. What do you reckon? Oh, I could not. Again, I were, we, you know, we see eye to eye on just virtually <laughs> everything. And I I. I I second and third what you've said, uh, 100 <laughs> percent. Uh, yeah, I think we need to go after the even even for me and you, we need to go after the low hanging fruit because, you know, yeah, I all those other things. Do I think herbicides and pesticides are good for us? No, but I think that's the that's the uh, one of the last things for most people to consider. You need to get the get the big picture right, and then you can start focusing on the little trivial, almost trivial details in, in comparison. I, I agree. And, and that's heart disease, uh, but there's so many more diseases. Uh, it, oh, sorry, if, you, if you're uh, done with heart disease just for the moment, there's so many others as well. I mean, one of the most emotive ones, the most frightening is cancer, uh, multiple cancers. Now, there are many cancers which are very big prevalent ones causing a lot of death who are intimately connected to insulin resistance syndrome and metabolic underlying disease. But, but maybe we can touch on cancer because I saw in your talk, again, the evidence that in primitive, not primitive, sorry, indigenous tribes eating their real foods, the rates can be stunningly lower than in modern westernized people. 
And Gary Taubes showed around four or five studies two years ago. Again, early 1900s studies on cancer. There was one doctor, I can't quote his name, but he spent around four years with 12,000 people in a tribe. And in those four years, he saw one um, neoplasm, I think, and it was a benign breast tumor. Very large and unusual, but benign. But that was it. And he just made the comparison with westernized people. The difference was so stark. He said it really is quite stunning. He was bemused by it. Right. I, if, I'm not sure, but I think that population he was referring to is probably the, the Catavans. Stefan Lindenberg um, lived with them for a period of time. I think it was just six or eight weeks, but, but yeah, it was, I'm, I'm quite certain that the, that the Catavans who consume a native traditional diet were just fantastically healthy, um, eating tubers, fruit, some vegetables, coconuts, coconut oil and fish. And they just were extraordinarily healthy, had no heart disease. Uh, the, I think one possible case of, of cancer, but no obesity, no diabetes, uh, just extraordinarily healthy. But right, so in the United States, um, uh, Jones paper, back to the one published in 2011, they, should, they had data from the town of Boston. Again, like I said, population was around 30,000 in 1811 and five people out of the 942 deaths died of cancer. That's 0.5%. It's one in 188 people died of cancer in Boston in 1811. But in the US by 1900, we were already up to one in 17 uh, deaths due to cancer. Uh, um, I can't, I think the, the I think the percentage is was 5.8 percent, if I remember right. So and then by 2010, we're at 31.2 uh, percent, I believe. Anyway, it's again, it's almost one in three, just like heart disease. So we went from so in a 200-year per period in the United States, we went from cancer causing one in 188 deaths to almost one in three in this, in this 200 year period. And there is just a slew of papers, studies. Um, there's um, some excellent book chapters that review the risk of omega-6 seed oils and cancer. And um, you and I briefly mentioned this at Low Carb Denver here a few weeks ago that, that uh, we see that um, those people consuming more than 4% of their diet as um, omega-6 PUFA have dramatically higher risk of, of cancer and cancer progression. So um, yeah, it just plays a huge role and, and there, there's, a, there's so many studies on, on that as well. Yeah, and I think this also resonates with what you said earlier in another example, uh, maybe Weston Price. You have to go to populations on low omega-6 to make a compare because currently if the people in the modern Western world are taking 10 or 12 or 14% of their calories from these omega-6 seed oils, uh, and if the cancer increases from one or two percent up to four or five percent in your diet and then it levels off, I think there's some papers indicating if you get to five or six percent, 
uh, of seed oils in your diet, then having more doesn't really increase the rate much. You're already kind of messed up. Well, then if you look at a population who are all on, say, 12 plus or minus 4%, they're from 8 to 16% seed oils, they're, they're all, you're not going to see a signal between them. They're all going to just have a high rate of cancer. You need to see a large number of people on 1% seed oils to compare, but you don't have them because everyone's eating this junk. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, the, yeah, there was a, um, there was a, um, a rodent study uh, in, I, I, well, I believe it was mice, that, where they looked at uh, seed oils starting at 0.5% and went up, like, I mean, by half percent increments, I believe. And they, they found that, I think it was at, the, the threshold was about 4.4%. As you said, that at that threshold, they had already increased the mammary tumors uh, to the maximum and above 4.4%. It didn't get any worse. Well, you know, so Americans, I can go, we can get to this data, but Americans were above 4% of their calories as seed oils probably in the 1960s or 70s, something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, by 1999, we were at 7% of our calories as omega-6 linoleic acid alone um, and still climbing. Wow. It's around, it's probably 10% or more now, maybe, because the, the, the seed oils have kept rising and natural fats have fallen over decades, even the past few decades. You had a stunning point for the, oh, the body composition, because all of these seed oils, they should be really signaling molecules rather than just for energy, like saturated or mono fats or eating animal foods. They're just mostly energy, but these are signaling the omega-3, omega-6. But you were looking at the graphs, possibly from DNA a few years back, how the Western world's adipose tissue, our fat tissue, has built and built and built up our percentage of these PUFAs. But you had a, another people who have stayed low, I, I think. Right, right. So, so let me just hit, you know, hit the seed oils kind of in general, if that's all right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, for the most part, the entire world had not seen any polyunsaturated vegetable oils until after the American Civil War, which ended in 1865. So it was right after that, basically 1866, the United States introduced seed oils into our population with cotton seed oil. And like I said, not, probably 99.9% of the world had never ever had any kind of seed oil before. There was a few isolated, uh, uh, small artisanal, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, consumers of seed oils, but the huge bulk of the world had never seen them. So this is what I would consider the biggest experiment that ever took place was 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 these so so and by 1880 we were already uh we were making cottonseed oil and we were adulterating our own olive oil with cottonseed oil and sending it to i believe it was spain and italy and italy i think was the one that made complaint in 1880 back to the US because they were getting barrels of what they thought was supposed to be olive oil coming out of our, there was only two places to, to get olive oil in the world and it was California, because we had olive trees and Italy. 
that's where the olive oil came from. And they, they knew by tasting it that it wasn't olive oil. They were adulterating it with cottonseed oil. But anyways, and so this, so, so the whole world's vegetable oil consumption was essentially zero throughout all of history until 1865. So by, by 1909, we get soybean oil, and then we get all the others. And the dreadful uh, polyunsaturated oils would include um, soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, and rice bran. And you put those four together, and in, in the United States, those just took off with a curve going like this um, until, uh, so we went from zero in 1865 to 80 grams a day per person per day by 2010. This is our published research. 80 grams a day is 720 calories worth. That's 32.5% of US caloric consumption. It's basically a third of our diet coming from vegetable oils and we never had them before so if you think if you go back even 1900 again it's all published data 1900 99% of our added fats came from lard butter and beef tallow it's all animal fat and all of that was of course pasture raised right by 2005 86% of our added fats came from vegetable oils. So we almost completely supplanted uh, animal fats, lard, butter, and beef tallow with vegetable oils. And of course, all of our diseases, heart disease, cancer, stroke, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, all through the roof, right? It just parallels that. And so I calculated what would have been our just linoleic acid, omega-6, consumption in 1865 based on pastured animals we would have gotten almost all of our linoleic acid from pastured animals then uh you know beef uh uh chicken and pork and mutton lamb and we would have gotten about 2.2 grams of omega-6 linoleic acid in 1865. we're at almost five grams a day by 1909 because we were consuming soybean oil and cottonseed oil by then we're 18 grams a day or 7% of consumption by 1999. And by 2008, we're at 29 grams a day of omega-6 linoleic acid alone, which is 11.8% of our diet. And guess what, Ivor, it's still climbing. So we went from 2.2 grams a day in 1865 in the US to 29 grams a day by uh, 2008, and it's still on the rise. I don't, I don't have data more recent than 2008. That's a 12-fold increase alone in our omega-6 linoleic acid in that 145-year period, essentially. Yeah, and you know, if, if you take 4% of calories as a kind of threshold, we don't know for sure because there are rat studies and that, but we can be pretty sure that's a good number evolutionarily we're around one or two percent four or five percent seems to be the threshold beyond which you don't make it a whole lot worse for cancer but you probably do make it further worse for obesity etc but we were reaching that four or five percent of calories back in the 1900s you know just before the epidemic got going it's not like it was the 60s and 70s we were hitting the four or five percent it was or it was way back right Oh yeah, way back. Yeah. 
you know, the, uh, like I said, this was this was one of the reasons that Weston Price left the United States uh, to do these studies around the world. Again, he couldn't find suitable controls at home because everybody had westernized their diet pretty much by the 1920s and 30s. And again, this is why heart disease became the leading cause of death in the 1930s in the US and I think in the UK because you know, we're all doing this, the, the same thing, consuming these vegetable oils. And you know with heart disease, things tailed off a bit in the uh, 80s or slightly seemed to get better. But to be honest, you know, the cessation of smoking, which would have been a huge driver also, that, that can account to a degree for the fact that heart disease got a little less worse. And also we had lots of medications and medical interventions, certainly for the mortality rates, etc. So we kept on the vegetable oils. The other thing is as well is they'd probably reach so high a level that going higher is maybe not going to make cancer worse for sure, not going to make cardiovascular disease much worse. You've already, you've already blown your bolt. Um, but it may indeed keep other things getting worse with more like macular degeneration. But the, the upshot of it is we've done an insane experiment and we're still doing it with no science, only largely science against it. Right. Yeah, it's just absurd. Just absolutely absurd. So um, should I hit the some of the data on type 2 diabetes and obesity? Yeah, actually, if we cover that one, too, because we got cancer cardiovascular uh, to a point macular degeneration, it's obviously a huge factor. Um, but yes, indeed, obesity, diabetes, nexus. Uh, and I know that Mike Eads, MD, a couple of years ago, did a talk on the electron transport chain and how these excess PUFAs could actually promote obesity. And I think you've been talking that and similar or other mechanisms also. So, yeah, that'd be a great one to hit. Right. Okay. Well, so with type 2 diabetes, we know historically that, that uh, diabetes of any type was exceedingly rare in the 19th century and presumably for all of history. Before that, by 1935, the very first study was done in the, in the U.S. I think it was an uh, NHAN study. But anyway, um, type 2 diabetes or diabetes was 0.37%. So that's a significant increase already. By 1960, um, we were at 0.91%. So that was a two and a half fold increase. Um, 2010, 6.95%. 2015, 9.4%. That was between, so between 1935 and 2015, an 80-year period, we had a 25-fold increase in type 2 diabetes. And as you know, um, the, the bulk of the nation is insulin resistant, so they're pre-diabetes, right? It's probably upwards of 70% or more. Well... Well, interestingly, the last figures I have that are solid 2015, over 45s, adults, it's 64% officially pre-diabetic and diabetic. But of course, it's, it's considerably higher if you measured with insulin. That was only measuring with glucose measures. So it, it's so high, it doesn't bear thinking about. Uh, and that, that actually has repercussions even during our current crisis with the coronavirus. I mean... 99% of Italian deaths had multiple medical conditions on average, I think 2.6%. Uh, 
and, and hypertension, diabetes, heart disease, which most of which is diabetes. You know, all these metabolic conditions seem to massively increase your risk of complications or death from this coronavirus thing. So, like, it's really coming home to roost now, I think. Right, right. Yeah, so, um, so let me tell you about obesity real quick because there, there was um, some brilliant research done by a guy named uh, Scott Allen Carson uh, is where I got this data. And he looked at, and I'm telling you, this stuff, as you know, it's really hard to get, to get evidence from the 19th century. I spent months trying to do this with macular degeneration. But anyway, so Scott Allen Carson dug up all this research on uh, data from prisoners in the states of Texas and Nebraska in the 19th century. And what they did is when they took these, they were male prisoners age 18 to 80, and they took their height and weight. And so he calculated their obesity in the 19th century, and it was 1.2%. That means their BMI was above 30, right? So the next piece of data that we have in the United States was um, in 1960, and obesity was 13%. Now, everybody in the United States, they look back at, you know, if you see films of people from the 1960s, everybody looks as lean as can be, right? But, but even by 1960, obesity had, between 1900 and 1960, obesity had increased 11-fold, right? It went from 1.2% to 13%, and then it just climbs, 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 and 2015, we're at 39.8%. So four out of 10 adult Americans obese today, and as you know, Ivor, there was a recent published paper, uh, I, uh, I think in the New England Journal of Medicine or JAMA, I can't remember which one, but that we're on target to be 50% of Americans obese by 2030. But even just between the late 19th century and 2015, obesity increase was 33-fold. So that's already documented and we're still climbing. So let me go back to, so I want to tie this back to our seed oils for a second. So Stefan Guionet collated 37 studies that looked at omega-6 linoleic acid in our fat tissue in Americans. And this, the, these studies were between 1959 and 2008. So he put them all, plotted them on a curve. And what it showed was that in, in 1959, our average linoleic, uh, omega-6 linoleic acid in our fat tissue was 9.1% in 1959. It steadily climbed to 21.5% by 2008. So remember, in 2008, we were at 29 grams a day. the same year. We're at 29 grams a day of seed oils. And the point of this is that the omega-6s, we were never meant to burn these for fuel. We can't properly beta oxidize these. In other words, burn them for fuel. They're meant to be stored and used as signaling molecules and structural molecules, particularly in the mitochondria as where they're, they're needed. Uh, and, uh, but instead what happens is we're filling up our tissues with these and, and 
they're driving all of this disease because they're pro-inflammatory, pro-oxidative, and they are toxic. And so all of this goes together. Um, you know, I might mention, um, you know, that, that, and it's not just omega-6 because I'm not totally convinced that if you're consuming significant omega-6, let's say from nuts and seeds, I think that, I don't have evidence for this, but I think that's different than seed oils because of the fact that the seed oils have a great deal of toxicity and we can go down that path. But Catherine Shanahan, Kate Shanahan, MD, who's also studied this since I think the 90s or early 2000s, she makes a great statement. She says, um, uh, how did she say it? That, oh, that uh, nature doesn't make bad fats, factories do. Yeah, that's a powerful Thank statement. And I think, you know, it's, it's that, you know, if you just squeeze an oil out of soybean, which you won't get hardly any, that's completely different than the way that these oils are extracted in uh, factories where they, they're, they're crushed, they're heated, then they are chemically alkalinized, bleached, and deodorized. Uh, and then steamed and they're heated four or five different times in this processing. They go through these factories that look like petroleum refineries. And at the end of that, they, what they do is they clean it all up and put it into a bottle and you got this nice, you know, light yellow colored liquid that looks, you know, and we're told it's harmless, but that is, those are bottles of poison. And, um, you put that in your food and the more of that you get, the sicker you're going to be. Yeah. And the absolute killer is though, if they were only in the bottles on the shelf, well, A, they'd be easy to learn about what we're talking about and get rid of them uh, for olive oil, tallow and, and uh, lard and other proper real fats. But the problem is they're not just in the bottles. And some people think, well, I'm going to stop using that bottle of vegetable oil to cook, but that's the least of it. Because the ultra processed foods, which are over 50% of UK calories now, are absolutely crammed with vegetable oils and seed oils because they cost next to nothing. I mean, as a, a component, because they've been chemically produced in a certain way, they have a very long shelf life. I mean, they're like the picture of the margarine in Australia and the butter, the two paths side by side, and the ants are all over the butter, and the ant, there's no ants on the margarine. You know, they. they even the ants are smarter than us not to touch these chemical concoctions. Right. It's, it's, uh, it, this is just extraordinary. I, I, I did the math here, um, a couple of years ago because on average, the, uh, there's good data on this, that the, the big food companies are buying vegetable oils on average. They were just a few years ago, I think it was 2014 they averaged $1 per kilo, that's 1,000 grams. So that's 9,000 calories worth of food, and I use the term loosely, 9,000 calories worth of food for a dollar. Um, soybean oil, which is the, the, that's I think the number one seed oil in the world, uh, I'm pretty sure. Soybean oil in 2014 and 2015 in the United States, cost about 74 cents per kilo. Now, I did the math on this. So the average American is consuming 80 grams a day. And yes, they don't need to pour any vegetable oil into their food. 
it's all in the processed food. So they're getting it from just eating processed food and restaurant food and all that. So, but 80 grams a day, I calculated the cost of this for a big food manufacturer. It's about 5.7, 5.6 or 5.7 cents to give them 80 grams, 720 calories, a third of their diet, of an American's diet for 5.7 cents, right? So then what they do is, then you add in a couple of cents worth of refined white wheat flour and a couple of cents worth of sugar. So for less than a dime, less than 10 cents, you can make a package of, uh, you know, uh, Pop-Tarts right? Um, pastries for a dime and sell it for $4. That's it. And the, and the cereals as well, and all the packaged and ultra processed foods, it all goes in the same economics. Uh, I believe that the food manufacturers spend considerably more on advertising than they do on even their raw materials and maybe even more their supply chain. So I was in Spain a couple of years ago. I took a photo to put on Twitter and they were selling five kilogram bags of flour. Now I forget what it was, but it's of that order. And I remember saying on the tweet, this stuff was grown in fields, sprayed with all kinds of chemicals that have cost, harvested, ground, processed, bagged, and came all the way to the supermarket with all of the middlemen in between, or middlewomen. <laughs> and then the supermarket needs its margin too, and yet it still costs nothing. I mean, it's, it's terrifying. So shelf life and near zero cost per meal per person for the manufacturers is a recipe for absolute disaster. Imagine egg yolks. I mean, the price of eggs, even though they're low, for a pastured egg yolk and its price per gram and per calorie are vastly higher, vastly higher. Exactly. That is exactly right. Yeah. So a bushel of wheat which is 60 pounds in the United States sells for it, 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 it fluctuates all the time, but it's usually around three to $4 and a bushel of wheat, 60 pounds produces about 42 pounds of refined white wheat flour. So, you know, you're getting, so there's some processing costs there, but for, you know, roughly $5 or, or less, you've got 42 pounds worth of wheat. So that's a, I, I don't know what, I haven't calculated how many calories that would be, but that is a massive amount of food. Um, you, you can imagine how much bread and dough, and it's no wonder you can make, you know, that these pizza places can make a pizza and put, a, you know, some, some cheap cheese and, you know, cheap sausage on there and make pizzas for seven Absolutely. That, it's, it's usually economics at the end of the day is what drives most problems in the modern world. Uh, it's just the way it is because there's always a race to the bottom. And that's what we have. And maybe we should circle around then to the strategy. On one hand, it's simple to do the right thing for your own health, the health of your family. Uh, you eliminate the triad, the sugar, refined grains and uh, seed oils. Given that the fourth one, dehydrogenated, is kind of being outlawed across the world now, maybe you don't need to worry too much about that, though I do know they're bringing in interesterified oils and trying to find new chemical torture to, to replace the lost hydrogenation. So that's probably a worry. 
but it's not that easy to eliminate because they're in all the food. So maybe we should just talk about the what kind of diet do you need to avoid the primary driving causal vector of most modern chronic disease? What what way do you eat? Okay, yeah, before I answer that, I want to just touch on the trans fats because this is another area that is, you know, so the United States um, today, I think that the date has already passed that the companies are, are supposed to have trans fats out of their food. But, um, I mean, this was an initiative that was taken way back in, 20, in June of 2016, Ivor, and they keep moving the date forward, moving the date forward. And now it was, I think, January of 2020. And I still see trans fats in foods today. So they're not coming down on these. But here's what's even more important is that there were studies done with um, uh, as many as, I think, somewhere between 16 to 29 different oils in, some, in, in several different studies that looked at trans fats in polyunsaturated vegetable oils, these terrible oils that we've been talking about. And the trans fats in those ranged from 0.5% to 4.6%. The average was 1.1% trans fats in these oils. And so 1.1% of 80 grams a day in the United States, people are getting around, I think it's around 0.7 grams a day just be, from their vegetable oils alone. And the, the US FDA has not ruled that there is any level of trans fat that's healthy. So, and they also have not ruled on, this is what's interesting is, is they've made no ruling on the fact that trans fats are in these vegetable oils and there's no way to get them out. Only way to get rid of the trans fats is to eliminate vegetable oils. And I don't see that happening because they're producing almost a third of the U.S. diet. And it's just a, it's just a, it's all financially driven. So, but, but so, you know, back to your question about, you know, how, how do you eat a healthy diet? Um, number one is, is I, I will say this, that, that to do that, you have to eliminate uh, refined added sugars, refined flours, the polyunsaturated vegetable oils, which I've named, and the trans fats. And I, I tell people, you know, in theory, it's fantastically simple to eat healthy, but to apply it, I mean, practically, pragmatically, it is difficult to do. And I think the only way to do that successfully is to prepare almost all of your own food um, because if you buy uh, ready-made food um, or you buy restaurant-prepared food, you are going to be consuming processed foods. You're going to be getting vegetable oils almost for sure and trans fats and probably sugars and refined wheat. You're, you're going to get all those. So I think you have to start with... Um, for the most part, preparing all of your own food from scratch as much as you possibly can. And then when, if you eat out, you have to be extremely vigilant about eating foods that wouldn't have seed oils. Like I think for us, what we do is we're, 
we, you know, we feel pretty safe eating sushi and eating steak, you know, but <laughs> things that they can't put seed oils or, you know, or don't put seed oils in, you know, they're not going to, they don't fry, as far as I know, they don't usually, you know, cook a steak. Most steaks are going to be cooked on a grill or something, so they're not going to be using seed oils, I don't think. But And if, if you, if you kind of get a really big um, a ribeye or something that's grilled, and I often mention to people, you can also say to the staff that you're allergic, you know, to, to vegetable oils. So just make sure it's butter or, or nothing. Uh, and they won't know that you're fibbing. You know, and, and they'll be careful because the celiac and everything else, they're, they're careful with that stuff. So they, they'll cook your one pretty clean. And if that's most of your meal and you just get steamed vegetables with it, again, you're pretty much clear of seed oils with steamed vegetables, you know, green beans or broccoli or, you know, those vegetable things. Uh, they're not really going to have seed oil. And if they bring you real butter to put on the vegetables... So you can navigate a restaurant if it's a good one by just being careful exactly as you say of, of what you get there and home cooking yeah that's important now our uh, irish stores like there's one brand tesco a big chain store they do actually i've been checking some pre-prepared meals with just irish vegetables and irish meats and some potato starch because they're avoiding wheat because of the celiac thing you know and you look at the back and there's actually very little in it but real food so they're kind of a, an aluminium tray of processed food but they're actually pretty much just real food minimally processed put in a tray that you heat up yourself so so there are ways to get convenience foods but if you're careful reading the label or if you get the nutrita app and you scan the label you'll find out very quickly okay this one is is not bad and of course, most stuff in the center of the supermarket, you scan with this app and you're going to go, oh my God, right? Right. Yeah. yeah you know, I have a friend, a, a physician um, who's a little bit older than me, but she has early macular degeneration. And we actually connected through my book back in 2016. And so we've been out to, to dinner uh, with she and her husband. They're both physicians from the UK, actually. And, but anyway, you know what she does is, is she, she tells the waiter or waitress, uh, she says, I'm allergic to vegetable oils of any type. I'm, I have an allergy. <laughs> and uh, so I'm telling you, they're like, they, they'll be going to the kitchen and she says, I can have butter, but no seed oil, no vegetable oils of any type. And I'm telling you, that works. And it's fair enough to say that because these are, these are poisons um to our body and you know she's not taking any chances so it works yeah. i think it's a good and thing to do for sure chris and you know it just occurred to me a month or two ago i was at the back of what's actually a reasonably good restaurant in dublin and the parking was out the back and i took a photo and there was a small hut there for materials and and waste and there were these big um five gallon drums and they just were generic vegetable oil. And there was a bunch of empty drums to be taken away. So there's no question, even pretty good restaurants are cutting corners and using these things. Um, you know, so that, so yeah, it's good advice, you know, get your meat, big cut of meat with steamed vegetables and say you're allergic and just b bypass all this junk. Right, mm. right. Yeah, we were in a, uh, a real, I won't give the name, but a really nice Br Brazilian steakhouse here in Denver recently and 
um, they brought uh, plantains to the table, which I love plantains cooked in butter. Anyway, but we asked what they were cooked in and, uh, and they were, of course, vegetable oils. And they, this is a really nice restaurant. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're, the, the thing is, is they can save a whole lot of money by cooking in these dirt cheap vegetable oils versus butter. Um, so, I mean, I, I have found that there are, there are restaurants that will cook in butter if you specifically request it uh, occasionally. But uh, I've also been told at a number of restaurants that they don't have an they don't have an ounce of butter in the whole restaurant. It just they're not they're not they're not to be found. So yeah, um, yes, it's a tragedy that even a restaurant, a house of of preparing good food for your enjoyment, and they don't have butter. I mean, imagine someone in Paris hearing that. <laughs> uh, you know, I will I will bet you that. I mean, at least historically, that's what the that's what the Parisians were known for. Is I mean, they cooked everything. They used butter and cream liberally in everything. No wonder their heart disease was so low. And even they have obviously began to supplant and replace their good, healthy animal fats, butter and cream, with vegetable oils to a degree. Uh, so they're well, going yeah, up my- as well. Yeah, my good friend, Dr. Garodo Lee, he's a retired pathologist down in Cork in the south of Ireland, but he travels extensively and he speaks fluent French, Spanish, you know, Irish and English. Uh, he's, he's a traveler, but he's fascinated by the whole low carb thing as well. And he lost a lot of weight by doing what we're saying. But in France, he noted many, many years ago, they had one third of the heart disease rates of America and they ate twice the saturated fat uh, percentage in their diet. So there was a six times disparity. And he said the lowest rates in France are in Gascony or the Perigord. I don't think I pronounced it. And they have lower rates even within France. And they have even higher rates of saturated fat and animal fat than the rest of France. So it even bears true within France. You know, they have all the pâtés down there and the... um, the goose liver and, you know, they just gorge on fat. But I agree, tragically, that's changing. Um, yeah. Right. I don't know if you saw from my, uh, my Low Carb Denver presentation, but I reviewed the Maasai Warriors. Uh, did you see that? So I saw the, that. The data, if I can mention that real quick, because mm. I think the listeners, the viewers would, would if, they, if they don't know this, it's, it's extraordinarily important to look at these, these populations because, you know, I learned that saturated fat is not driving heart disease back in 2011, but Ivor, honestly, it took me about three years to look at saturated fat, you know, the fat on steak and butter and all, and just to know that it was to finally get it in my head after you know 50 years of being told it was bad to get it in my head that this is what's healthy um but anyway the so the maasai uh tribe of kenya and tanzania um for people that don't know um that they've been extensively studied and what i'm going to tell you here is pub is all published evidence so in uh 
as you mentioned earlier, George Mann and colleagues studied them and published a, an incredible paper in 1972. And the Maasai, their diet is milk, meat, and blood. They're pastoralists, and that they're, almost all of their food comes mostly from the milk of the cattle they herd. They don't kill their animals very often. They'll eat animals, but they don't really kill their own cattle very often because they use them for the milk all the time. But an average uh, uh, Maasai would consume three to five quarts of whole, raw, obviously unpasteurized, unhomogenized milk per day. And that milk is a really high in saturated fat, like up to 68%. So their diet is 66% animal fat, and it uh, is uh, at least 33 to 45% saturated animal fat, uh, about 1.7% omega-6, and um, yet in 1972, with 50 autopsies and 350 EKGs, they found no heart attacks with the exception of one possible silent MI, in the entire studied population. So they have virtually no heart disease, no obesity, no diabetes, just incredibly lean, brilliantly healthy people. And, uh, and you know, then I looked at Tokelau. Um, can I mention them too, Ivor? Yeah. Okay, so Tokelau, the Tokelauans were studied in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s even, but in Tokelau, which is an, uh, uh, a South Pacific island. It's about midway between Hawaii and Australia. And in Tokelau, <clears throat> their diet is mostly, uh, it's well, 58 to 62% coconut. And they get a few other fruits and vegetables and uh, fish is pretty significant. Um, but anyway, their diet is um, mostly based on coconut and Coconut oil is 91 to 94 and a half percent saturated. And so the Tokelauans diet was right at about 48% saturated fat. So while the Maasai have the highest saturated animal fat of any population known in the world and have no heart disease, the Tokelauans have the highest saturated fat coming from a tropical oil of any population known in the world at about 48%. Roughly half their diet is saturated fat and they had no heart disease. Men aged 40 to 69, I believe it was, in the entire study, not a single uh, uh, tidbit of evidence that they had any heart disease whatsoever, and they also didn't have obesity, diabetes, they were lean, healthy, virtually no uh, cancer, uh, just an extraordinarily uh, healthy population. So there's two populations right there. And if you look at those, it was an article I read back in 2007 that Nina Teicholz had written. It was in Men's Health. This was back when I didn't know anything about nutrition. I heard nothing. I was as dumb and clueless as the typical physician. And I read her article, I think it was in Men's Health in 2007, and she reviewed the Maasai. And I, it hit me right then and there. I'm like, I've been told a lie my entire life. You know, how could these Maasai warriors consuming 66% animal fat, more than half of which is saturated, have no heart disease, right? You know, I mean, I know Gary Taubes had reviewed this a few years earlier, and I think Nina might have 
you know, picked it up from Gary Taubes actually. So I give Taubes a lot. I'm, I'm not in a, in total agreement with everything Gary Taubes is saying, but I think he's done a lot of good. And he's, Oh, you know, he opened my eyes to that, uh, that story, which I think yeah. he published way back in 2003 or so. Yeah. He, 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 he opened a lot of doors to a whole new generation of, of critical thinkers. He gave them the doorway into realizing like you did, hold on a minute. One fact doesn't make a summer or everything, but one fact so enormous for sure means we were lied to. The only question now is the extent we were lied to. And when you add in then the toke allowance or whatever, when you add in the semaine where they've done calcification studies, Katavans and all the others you mentioned in your talk, you've basically got so many black swans, you absolutely know for a fact that we were lied to. And it's just a reality. And, you know, I think the world is changing now and people, people are waking up. So we could probably end on a positive note that we have a long way to go, especially with the heart healthy vegetable oils. But the world is beginning to wake up. What do you think? And how many years will it take now going forward for a reasonable majority of educated people to be pretty aware of what we're talking about? That's my definition. A reasonable majority of, of, of aware and interested people to be largely cognizant of what we're talking about. What do you, what do you reckon? Well, I, I, I honestly, I just have no idea. Uh, it seems to me that the medical orthodoxy, uh, allopathic medicine, it, it seems extremely resistant to, uh, to all of this change. And, um, you know, I know that you, I heard a podcast you did with Professor Tim Noakes, and one of the things he said was that uh, in his experience, which I think is several decades, he said, and I think I can, I'll paraphrase, but it's almost a quote. He said, cardiologists are not interested in prevention of heart disease, right? And, and this is so true. It's what we see across a lot of medicine is the fact that a lot of physicians, unfortunately, as much as I hate to say it, because I'm one of them, but as a group, I don't see a lot of interest in prevention of disease because all that disease, there, there's not a financial incentive to, pre to prevent disease. I heard one, one physician um, here in Boulder, Colorado made the statement. He said, I've seen physicians make fortunes of money, um, the orthodox allopathic way treating disease as we've been taught in medical school you know you just throw drugs and procedures at it right and he said and i've seen physicians literally go broke trying to prevent disease there's just no money nobody wants to pay to prevent disease they're just looking at you know they want a hero to bail them out when they're on their deathbed essentially and, and that's a yeah. sad fact but there's a I mean, I think we're, we're certainly growing in the right direction and the more of, you know, I, I see a lot of citizen scientists, you know, that people all over the, all over the world are beginning to gather, you know, gather this. And there, I, I have, you know, I have so many, pay, uh, you know, I should say uh, uh, followers out there that are taking my book, for example, to their ophthalmologist. Um, and some get a 
you know, kind of a decent reception and many do not. So I don't know. It, we'll see where it goes, but it's, 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 a, it's a tough movement. I mean, it's a grassroots movement. Yeah, it's going to be, it's a tough question and it often comes up uh, in interviews and I ask it often and I'm asked it often. It's, it's good to close with that uh, question, I think. But I think the tipping point, if six or seven or eight percent of the medical profession get this, I think then there'll be a tipping point where the whole medical profession could more rapidly get it. But right now it's maybe one percent. And, and they can be written off as cranks by the rest of the profession. But if we can get it up to six, seven or eight and the young generation of doctors that are coming, they're pretty wise and with it. And if I say, may say so, my daughter just started first year medicine in Ireland's top medical college. And uh, there's quite a lot of medical students who are aware of keto, who are using keto for, for health and slimness. You know, the younger generation are internet savvy so I think the younger doctors may help a lot and including the more established uh, doctors like yourself who are leading from the front. So great stuff, Chris. And uh, we'll circle back again of another chat in a while on, on this and other topics, I think. Yeah. Sounds great, Ivor Cummins. Hey, I want to thank you so much for what you've done uh, for the movement that you're helping to create. And I learned about CAC from you, and as I mentioned to you when you were here in Denver, um, that I had my own CAC score done a month ago, and at age 59 and consuming huge amounts of saturated fat for the last nine years, my CAC score was zero for every single artery. Um, I wouldn't have known about the CAC, actually, uh, if it weren't for you. I began to learn that from you maybe about a year or so ago, so I understood a lot of this in principle, but didn't know about the CAC. So anyway, I want to thank you for that. And Ivor, it's just an honor and a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much. And thanks for helping us to spread this, this uh, movement. Yeah, honor and pleasure is all mine, Chris. So till next time, have a great rest of your day and rest of your week and, and beyond. Thanks, Chris. Sounds Bye great. Now. Thank you, Ivor. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in guys. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see my subscribe button in the middle of the screen and go to extratimemovie.com to see our fascinating new documentary on stopping and reversing heart disease.